Good morning. Happy New Year. As it comes up tomorrow, tomorrow, by midnight tonight, will be another year. If you're just getting used to writing 2023 on anything, then tomorrow you'll have to start all over again. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanted to say, first of all, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that Pastor Seth has given me to preach this morning. And uh, it's not my first time preaching on a Sunday morning, but it is my first time preaching on a Sunday morning here. And uh, I'm a little nervous. Um, I don't know why. So pray for me. But I'm deeply honored to have this opportunity. So as we look at 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, it says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. From the pen of the Apostle John, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, we have the word of God. May God add his understanding and blessing to this reading of this portion of scripture. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now seeking wisdom from you. Lord, illuminate your word to us that we would know the truth. God, and that your truth, that the truth, would set us free. In the name of the holy name and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we've made it through the Christmas season, right? Everything, we've gotten through everything, and now we turn our attention to two things. One thing is we look forward to the new year, which is, again, literally tomorrow. We do one of two things. We look forward to the new year and think about what the new year will bring, and we often reflect on what the last year has held for us, whether it be disappointing or been good. But either way, we look forward oftentimes, I hope we look forward to the next year, and we'd, we'd make those little pesky resolutions, right? That, as Seth said, we don't usually keep beyond a couple weeks, and if we make it to the end of January, that's a success. I think one of mine last year was to eat better. So last night I, I, I crossed out better and uh, checked that one off the list, which was nice. I didn't really make a whole lot of resolutions last year, just things that I wanted to try to be more intentional about. And you might be saying, well, tomato, tomato, John. But I, I thought about different things like spending more time with some friends that perhaps I hadn't gotten to spend more time with or being intentional about checking in on them. And either way, we, we set goals. Perhaps it's because we've been so sugared up from Christmas and we forget what day it is, and it's just a way for us to begin moving to be more productive. I know uh, this week, uh, Sherry called me to ask about a title. I didn't have the heart to tell her. I hadn't put anything on paper yet. Um, but I, I, it made me panic. I was like, what day of the week is it? Like, is it, is, it, is it tomorrow? I forgot what day of the week it was. But truthfully, as creatures created by the living God... We're created to work, we're created to cultivate, we're designed to be productive. We're designed to produce. 
there's something created within us that says we need direction. We need a goal. Often we're the least productive, we're the least guided when we have no direction. In this passage of 1 John, I believe John is giving direction to his audience. So if I had now have a title for the sermon, it's Direction, Not Destruction. The letter of 1 John is written to encourage believers. He reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is real. In 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen, we've touched, we've beheld. I know Jesus. I saw Jesus. I'm letting you know this is a reality. 1 John 2, he says, I'm writing that you may not sin, but if you do, there's forgiveness in Jesus. Last time, last week, we looked at the encouragements that he wrote to different Um, maturity levels of the church. He says, you know him. You're strong. You've overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in you. Your sins are forgiven. He's been encouraging his readers and reminding them. And it's as if today's passage, when it gets to it, it's saying, I not only want you to enjoy forgiveness, but I want you to endure the fight that lays before you. The fight against the enticements of the world. Everything else that John has said so far in 1 John, and when I say John, I have to make this clear because my wife was telling me this. I mean the Apostle John, not me. Um, I don't want that to get confused. But the Apostle John, everything he said up to this point has been passive. This is the first overt command. Because if you look back, he says, if you say that you're in the light, but you walk in the darkness, well, are you really in the light? I write to you that you may not sin, but if you do, there's Jesus. Whoever says he's in the light, but hates his brother, then he's not really walking in the light. It's as if Jesus takes a deep breath, or excuse me, it's as if John, the apostle John, takes a deep breath and says, do not love the world. What does he tell his audience? Well, he tells them three things. The first of which is the world's ways are not God's ways. This sounds kind of obvious, but what does John, what does the apostle John mean by the world? Is it creation? Well, creation's good. Creation is the way that God has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature. It's It's a good thing that we can look out into the world and see, wow, God is created. He is good and powerful. So it can't be that we're necessarily to not enjoy creation, maybe not love it in a way. We'll see that later, but it's not creation. What about the people? Well, that doesn't really compute because Jesus tells us that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus tells us that God so loved the world, meaning the people, that he sent his only son. And when God created the world, it became very good when his image bearers were now in creation. Once man was created and all the systems were ago that God had created, it became very good. So it doesn't seem that the people would fit. But what about the system? 
What about the world system that it has? We see through scripture that it's tainted by sin, that it's corrupt, it's ran by Satan, and is ultimately and totally against God's will. The system of the world is hostile to God. The world system is one that places such a high value on creation or creature rather than the creator. It is a sinful participation of indulgence, of indulgence of the life that we live here and now. The love of indulgence, this love of indulgence reveals two simple truths about God's ways not being our ways, but it reveals two simple truths, that if you try to love God and the world, you will fail. The words of Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both the world system and God. The second thing we find from this indulgence is that even the good things that God created can become sinful to us. This is why John tells us, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. They're serving two masters. In James 4.4, we find that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Those who love the world ultimately become enemies of God. We cannot be in love with the world and serve God at the same time. We cannot adhere to the world system at the same time, abide in the will of God. But what is this worldly system? And the world uses three weapons to attack us. The world attacks with three weapons. The first is the desires of the flesh and then the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh speak to our appetites, the things that ultimately satisfy the senses and brings pleasure and even comfort. It's taking a good thing that God has designed to be used within his own purposes, his own law, and taking those things and indulging in them in a sinful way that they are an end in and of themselves to feed my flesh, to, to go about doing what I want to do that gives me pleasure and gives me comfort. The world tells us that is the ultimate goal of life, to be comfortable. Food is good for us. It's something God designed for us to sustain us. But yet it can yield gluttony. Perhaps I shouldn't bring up gluttony right after Christmas, right? Sexuality as designed by God is a good thing. Within the context of how he has designed marriage and designed men and women to relate, it is a good thing that God has given us. But the world says, unhinge that from God's word and make it all about yourself. Nature can even be appreciated and enjoyed. We can enjoy the creative power and beauty of God. But when that becomes the very thing that we devote ourselves to, it becomes an idol good things, the flesh tells us, take the good things that God has given us and make them all about yourself and not about him. 
it's the same sin that Eve faced in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, even though it went against the very command that God had given both Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree, she saw that it was good for food. It says, fill your belly, feed your flesh, rather than to obey God. This is the weapon of the world telling me to indulge in my wanton desires of my senses. The second weapon is the desires of the eyes. It speaks to our affections. It is the tendency to be captivated by the outward and external appearance that says, feed your flesh with this. You want it. It's beautiful. It's pretty. It'll make you feel better. I like to fish. And my friend Devin and I, we're uh, hoping to fish in tournaments in the coming spring, hopefully. And I'm still learning about how to fish and how to use the right things. And so we go to Bass Pro Shop, which is a good place to start. And we go down the fishing lure aisle, which there's like a million of them. And there are so many things on the shelf that I'm like, how do you know which one's the right lure to buy? Because you could spend a lot of money buying them all. And I think that's the goal of every fisherman. I'm not sure. But my friend Devin stopped me. He says, remember, lure is designed for two things. One is to attract fish, to make something look like the fish either wants to eat it or get rid of it, destroy it, one of the two. But also remember that the fishing companies design these lures to catch you too. They may be pretty, but they may be useless, especially in our area. The fish, the, the lure is meant to act as something that will entice the fish, but by the time the fish realizes there's a hook in it, It's that same desire of the eyes that captivated David in 2 Samuel when he is supposed to be at war with his army, but it chose instead to stay home. He looks down, he sees Bathsheba on the roof, and he says, I've got to have her. She's beautiful. The desires of his eyes told him to feed his flesh, be comfortable. Pleasure is what you want. And not only did David commit adultery and deception, but ultimately murder of Uriah. It's the same desire that captivates Eve again in Genesis chapter 3, because she saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. The desire of the eyes is to quote Alistair Begg, it is a love of beauty that is divorced from the love of goodness. The love of beauty that is divorced and separated from the love of goodness. It is the desires of the eyes as the second weapon that the world uses says, look, this is what you want, this is beautiful, come take it, feed your flesh with this. The world seeks after the things that make us comfortable and make us happy. 
entice us to desires of the eyes, entice us to feed our flesh. The third thing that the Apostle John mentions is the pride of life, and it speaks to our ambitions. If the flesh speaks to our appetites and the, the eyes speaks to our affections, this speaks to our ambitions and what we have and what we achieve and what our goals are. The world says get all you can get. Be as successful as you can. This is the idea of a person who is a braggart or someone who tries to make themselves more important than they really are. It could be through the acquisition of possessions. The more I have, the more important that I am. Or through the number of experiences that they have. I've done this, and I've done that, and I know more than you. It could even be through the acquisition of knowledge. Trying to prove that I know more than somebody else. A couple years ago, uh, my friend JB, who lives in Alabama, and I, we went to the Outer Banks uh, on a fishing trip. Seems to be a common theme in the sermon. We went on a fishing trip in the Outer Banks, and the house that we're staying in had this giant map of the entire area. And if you don't know much about the Outer Banks, it's a sandbar island that on one side is the Atlantic Ocean, and the other side is the Pamlico Sound. Well, this map has all the depths of the water of the Pamlico Sound, and it can go from 20 feet to three feet really quickly. Part of the treachery of the Outer Banks is that the sand on the bottom can shift from day to day. And so we're looking at this map, marveling, because it takes up an entire wall. And in the middle of the map, there is a circle that is stamped by the U.S. government. And it says, all boats must stay within two miles outside of this radius. And we began to discuss why that was there. And I began to argue in my intellect, my superior knowledge that I knew better than he did, that it was because the water went from being very deep to very shallow very quickly. And that they didn't want somebody to run into the sandbar and be stuck. And JB didn't agree. And we argued some more and argued some more. And finally, JB chuckles. And he looks at me and he says, you're just so convinced that you're right. And I paused. I said, wrong I, I'm not I, I don't think I don't think I'm right and JB laughed and we parted ways and went to bed and I'm sure JB went to sleep and I stared at the ceiling all night going I don't always have to be right do I but that was the way I was acting I had to be smarter than he was come to find out JB was right it was actually a place where during World War II the Army Air Corps had placed a boat and they had practiced strafing runs in the ocean and sunk a ship. And the fear is, is that in that area, there could still be active bombs. So it was a much cooler thing than I thought, that it just got really shallow. But that was the pride of life saying, you're trying to prove that you know more than your friend. I don't even think JB gave it another thought, but it, it affected me and still does to this day. The pride of life says, you know more. It's the same pride of life. What was affecting me is what John speaks of, the Apostle John. It says, look at all that I have. Look at all that I know. Or if I accomplish this, if I achieve this, if I know this, then I will be better off than anyone else. The world says we can accomplish many of these things on our own. 
that if we get all that we can get and do all that we can do, then we won't have to listen to anyone or anything else. You'll have it all. It's the same pride that captured Eve again in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and then gave some to her husband as well. These three weapons the world speaks, the world uses to throw at us. It speaks to our appetites, what we want, the desires of our flesh. It speaks to our affections, the things that, that, that we love and that we want to feed our flesh with. And then the pride of life speaks to all that we know and all that we have and our ambitions in life. The first thing is the world is not, the world's ways is not God's ways. The second thing is that the world has three weapons it throws at us. And the third thing is that the world is passing away. Along with its desires, as it says in verse 17. When you think about all these things and the desires and the ambitions that we have, uh, my wife always tells me I can't preach a sermon without using a sports reference. Here it is. Trophies are something that right now there are teams going to compete later today that they're trying to achieve a trophy. They're trying, their whole ambition, their whole goal, their whole desire, everything that they work for is a trophy. A couple years ago, uh, I was watching the Stanley Cup on TV with my family, and I don't even remember who was playing. I don't think it was anybody that we particularly rooted for. But one of the teams could have clinched the Stanley Cup that night, whatever night we were watching. And when they came back from commercial break, they zoomed in on the Stanley Cup. And if you don't know what it looks like, it's a giant cup that is silver. It's got a base, got a little bowl on the top, and it's huge. And it's got all the names of everybody who's ever won the Stanley Cup, all the names of the players. And it's beautiful. It's shiny. And the thing that I noticed is that as they zoomed in on it, there's somebody with white gloves with a polishing rag, and they are polishing away at this entire thing. They keep polishing and polishing and polishing. And even while the game is going on, you can see where it's sitting and they're polishing the whole time. And I'm like, why? Why Don't they ever get a break? It's got to be, they're going to be sore by the time they get done. But the reason why is because trophies, the moment that they are cast, they begin to the moment that a trophy is made of something of shiny, whether it be the Stanley Cup, the Borg Warner, the Super Bowl trophy, or whatever trophy it may be, it begins to fade. And if left unmaintained, the elements of the world will destroy it. And it'll become rust. And it'll become tarnished. If you watch the Super Bowl this year, watch and see what happens after they hand the coach the Super Bowl and then he hands it to all the players, and then finally it comes back to the front, it's disgusting. Because everybody's kissed it, touched it, whatever. It's begun to deteriorate already. The appetites, the affections, and the ambitions of the world and the world's values are much like those trophies. They begin, they fade, they deteriorate. Those things that are in direct conflict with the will and the word of God do not last. The imagery used in 1 John is the, 
is the idea of a curtain coming down in a theater. And as the curtain comes down, the, the, the crew changes the scenery. And then when the curtain goes back up, everything that was is now no longer there. The curtain is coming down. At the end of it, it will not matter how much you've achieved or how much you've fed your flesh or how much the desires of the eyes have gotten you. It will not matter any of that, but what will matter is that which is lasting, the word and will of God. So why does this matter? We've looked and seen that Eve, Adam and Eve, were both tempted in the garden by the same three things that we deal with. The desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. It is the same three things that Jesus himself is tempted with in Luke chapter 4. When he's in the wilderness and he's hungry, Satan says, turn these stones to bread. Feed your flesh. And Jesus turns and says, well, God's ways is not the world's ways because man shall not live on bread alone. Satan shows him all the kingdoms, the desires of the eyes. You can have all this if you'll just worship me, Jesus. Jesus reminds that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, throw yourself down and the angels will tend to you. Show the world who you are. God, or Jesus reminds that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Each time Jesus is tempted by Satan, he reveals that God's ways are not his ways. But there's a major difference between the temptation that man today faces and that which Jesus faced. Once sin entered the world, it tainted all things, including the internal will and desire of man. James 1.14 reminds us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The Apostle John writes these things to warn his readers. The same sinful desires that doomed humanity can reside within you. It's why he reminds them over and over again, remember, you know Jesus. Because the reason why that's important is because Jesus has fully man, yet he's fully God. And he has no earthly father because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he does not have a sinful nature within him. It is because of this that Jesus can keep the laws of God perfectly. It is because he is fully God and yet fully man that the incarnate Christ is the perfect sacrifice that atones for the sins, for our sins on the cross. Why in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive and find grace in the time of Apostle John is reminding his readers the sin and desire that caught Adam and Eve, it resides in you, it's tainted you, 
You're capable of these things. You can be tempted by your own desires, but you can draw near to Christ with confidence. You can draw near him in confidence because he knows what we deal with. We can draw near to him in confidence because knowing that our sins are forgiven because he's conquered sin and death. We can draw near him in confidence knowing that when the world passes away, that we can abide in him and all that abide in him will remain. This section of scripture ends with whoever does the will of God abides forever. When Jesus was pressed about the greatest commandment, he summed up the whole law in this way in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The world systems feed our own sinful appetites, our affections, and our ambitions. They're directly opposed to God. It's an enticing system. It looks good. It feels good. But there's a hook in it. The Apostle John warns his readers, do not love the world. Love God. Abide in him. You know him. Know that he's the way, the truth, and the life. You know the Father because you know Jesus. Do you know Jesus today? Right where you are, you can know him this very hour. You can ask the question, am I going to embrace the moment that says, get all that I can, and all my goals and my ambitions for the next year are about to achieve what, what makes me happy and makes me wealthy and wise. Am I going to embrace the moment and forfeit eternity? Or am I going to be reminded by the Apostle John of the direction that my life is headed? We have direction where destruction lurks. no magic involved. It's just long obedience to Christ. Do not 